Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. I'm Margot Kahn, and I'm reading from my book, Horses That Buck, the story of champion bronc rider Bill Smith. It was published in May by the University of Oklahoma Press, and um, I am currently living in Seattle. Even the skinniest man is handsome on horseback. He is handsomer still when he wears his hat down low, when his eyes, especially when they are steel blue, are set deep, and when the skin of his face is carved in sharp crow's feet and in soft curves around the mouth. A thin man often has beautiful hands, if they are working hands, or so I have found. But if he is working, his hands may be gloved, and so they will be mysterious. His legs, which may be stork-like, are purposeful when mounted, wrapped with strength around the belly of a horse, and his non-existent rear is obscured in the seat of his saddle. This was how I first saw Bill Smith, on a little gray, a flag in his hand. The first thing I heard him say was, There are two things in this world I would fight to the death for. And I noticed how easy he was sitting in his saddle, how his eyes shone under the shadow of his hat, how the heels of his hands rested on his saddle horn. The gathered crowd leaned or sat on the rails of the round pen and shifted in the heat. When the gray shifted, the saddle creaked. He said the two things he'd fight for were his wife and his freedom, in that order. I looked around for his wife, but none of those assembled looked the least bit likely. I turned my horse and tightened the cinch, exchanged the halter for a bridle, and listened, as my horse did, with one ear to this man. He spoke of freedom and of companionship, of animal instinct, of will and determination, of strength and loyalty, of generosity, gratitude, and reverence. The words he used were plain. He said that if one day all the horses had to leave this world, he would go with them. I swung myself into the saddle and turned up the road. That afternoon, my mother sat in the sun behind the lodge and painted each of a thousand vistas, and my father and brother angled for rainbow trout. We had converged at the home ranch in Clark, Colorado, for our annual family vacation. That same week, the ranch had hired Bill Smith to train green colts in the mornings and to ride with the wranglers and guests in the afternoons. It was said he was a master horseman and had a gentle approach towards training, riding, and dealing with a horse. I had never heard of him or his method before, but the day after I overheard his speech in the round pen, he brought his coffee and sat down next to me at lunch. He didn't say much, just, I think I'll come set here with you. His body almost curled into the low chair as he settled into it, completely relaxed, as if to show that the chair demanded nothing of him physically, and he cradled his coffee as if there wasn't enough of it. I rode with him that afternoon, and the next, and the day after that. On Friday night, we ate an early dinner and went into town for the rodeo. 
The Steamboat Springs Night Rodeo is small potatoes as far as rodeos go, but I had nothing to compare it with. It was the first rodeo I'd ever seen. We climbed high into the bleachers and found spots in the sun, but Bill and his wife Carol kept moving. They got up and hovered over the chutes to watch the inside action, stood down near the fences by the judges. Carol wore a red jacket that said Bill Smith in cursive across the back. She was almost as tall as him and slim. They kept close to each other, holding hands carefully like they were on a date. Girls on fast horses made laps of the arena, carrying flapping flags. Clowns kicked their boots in the arena dust. And as the evening grew bitingly cold, the lights came up. When Bill finally returned to the stands, he couldn't sit still. He said it wasn't a very good rodeo, that the judges were inflating the markings. He said that he wasn't much of a rodeo fan anyway, never could get used to watching it from the stands. But there was something about the way he watched the proceedings, especially the men who rode the bucking Bronx, and there was a distant but competitive edge in his voice. I did not know then that he had spent 20 years on the road, riding under the lights of arenas full of cheering fans. I did not know how much work it took him to get there, or how many sleepless nights, flat tires, and broken bones. I did not know how many miles he traveled for the chance to ride a horse that bucked, or what it felt like, or how the road could make you feel free. Later, someone said to me, you know, Bill's a three-time world champion bronc rider. Someone else said, Bill, he's lived a life most people only dream about, and some people wouldn't dream of. The next morning I had to leave. I said goodbye to my family, and then I found Bill walking with his horse towards the round pen. I said, I've come to say goodbye. Well, hold on, he said, stopping his horse and stepping off, draping the reins loosely over his forearm. He said, let me shake your hand. The little horse stood patiently while we exchanged a few words. He said I should come and visit his ranch whenever I was in Thermopolis, the chances of which I thought were highly unlikely. Not wanting to let go of the opportunity, I said, I'd like to write a book about you. Bill said, well, I'd like to help you in any way that I can, but I don't know what you're going to write about. Three months later, I flew into Cody. There was snow in the mountains, and the sky was streaked with mare's tails. Carol met me at the airport, and we ate lunch at the airport cafe. Eyeing my grilled ham and cheese, Carol said, Bill was worried you might be one of those vegetarians. She then took me to meet Bill's mother, his eldest sister Barbara, her daughter, and a family friend. Over several pots of coffee in Bill's mother's living room, the women told me stories about their Bill Smith. Ignorant of how it might make them nervous, I ran my tape recorder and scribbled notes in my notebook, and in the end the tape was blank because I did not know how to work my first tape recorder. At dusk, Carol and I drove 80 miles to Thermopolis in her white F-250. We had the road to ourselves and didn't see much of anything except for one quiet, small town. The Smith Ranch sits on 200 acres in a bend of the Bighorn River. Alfalfa is harvested in the spring and summer while the horses pasture close to the water. In winter, the horses run everywhere. The main house is a double-wide trailer at the end of a long, rutted road, only sometimes accessible without four-wheel drive. 
The house is surrounded by outbuildings, sheds, a barn with stalls for six horses, a hay shed, an indoor arena, and several pastures. Inside, a master bedroom, a guest bedroom, and an office branch off the main living room and kitchen. The guest room looks out onto the satellite dish, the pastures, the long drive that runs along the train tracks, and the neon light of the Super 8 motel over the hill on the main road through town. In the alcove between the guest room and the office, the walls are covered with old black and white 8x10 photographs. Many are of Bill making picture rides on Bronx like Sage Hen, Wall Street, and Descent. In each, the horse is caught balancing on its front hooves, its hind legs high in the air behind, suspended in motion, as if they were diving into the ground. Bill purses his lips together, his jaw tight, his eyes focused somewhere in front of him. He sits straight up like the pivot in the center of a seesaw, one hand on a rope rein and one hand high in the air. A few photos are of Carol and her horse, Printer, racing around a turn, dirt flying from the horse's hooves like water. And others are of their friends, Jim Houston, Joe Alexander, Mel Highland, who have signed the photographs with thanks, best wishes, and love. In the spare bedroom, Carol had cleared the desk and made space in the closet for me. Too tired to organize, I set my bag next to the glass gun case with its resting rifles and went to sleep. When I woke, land and sky were a blank canvas. A four-point buck left quiet cloven prints past the satellite dish outside. I watched him as I pulled on several layers of clothes. In the living room, Bill sat in his lazy boy watching the news on CNN. When I emerged, he came and joined me at the kitchen table for breakfast. He sat in the chair beneath the phone, though he hates to answer it, closest to the TV in case anything exciting should happen with his back to the wall and with a view of the door like the Sundance Kid. It would be in that spot over the next several years that we would sit with notebooks and my tape recorder between us. Often the dishwasher would be humming or the washer and dryer thumping out a rhythmic beat, sometimes both at once, almost drowning out our voices on tape. We would talk for a few hours, break for lunch, watch football, do chores, tend horses, move cattle, ride. If I may make one generalization, it is that cowboys love to call one another liars. As stories are told over the years, details are embellished, the horses get wilder, the snow gets higher, and details are accumulated. Someone falling off their chair upon hearing a story suddenly becomes a part of it. In fact, the more a friend is loved, the bigger liar he becomes. His sincerest compliments are in this way brushed off the humblest shoulders, and his memory is kindly called into question. In gathering stories for this book, I took everything I heard and tried to tell a story that would give a taste of one man's life in a moment in time. I did this as accurately as I knew how, given the general fallibilities of distance and memory and the specific difficulty of interviewing subjects who, upon being asked for clarification of a point, eagerly and fondly asked me to make it up. This is from Chapter 3, Going Down the Road. The 1956 Ford Fairlane had straight lines, straight fenders, and was overall a fairly straightforward car. 
The chrome rub strip or sweep spear that swooped gracefully from fender to fender, and the jazzy two-tone paint job, black on the top and white on the bottom, were designed to make the boxy car look streamlined and rakish, which it was not at all. Nor was it particularly fast. The speedometer rounded off at 100 miles per hour, and even with overdrive on the three-speed transmission, the car took 11 seconds to go from 0 to 60 with a V8 engine. To achieve top speed in the fair lane was possible only by driving all out and accumulating speed slowly over many miles. Softly suspended, the car had a cloud-like quality when cruising at more than 80 miles per hour, and as they sped along through the night, Jim Houston sometimes experienced the sensation of floating over the dark road. It felt like flying, and that was what he loved about driving fast. From the driver's seat, he looked out over the fair lane's enormous steering wheel, across the padded dashboard, through the panoramic wraparound windshield, over the wide white hood and the headlight's futuristic visor shields. He watched the road for the flashing eyes of deer and antelope. He drank coffee to stay awake. Bill slept on the naugahyde seat beside him. He wore hush puppies, a cotton t-shirt, and wranglers without a belt because a belt made his stomach hurt, especially when he was crumpled all night in the car. He never wore a cowboy hat except when he had to. He left it on its crown in the trunk with the rest of the gear and perched a trucker's cap on his short-shorn blonde hair. On the seat between Bill and Jim were two books, the small brown ledger in which Bill kept a record of his horses, and a Louis L'Amour book he'd read once or twice before. He was always reading the current bestsellers, Western dramas, historical fiction. If they checked into a motel in the middle of the night, no matter how long they'd been on the road, he would switch on the light and read a few pages. At night, particularly, he liked the engaging stories of L'Amour. It was easy reading, the kind of thing he could take a few pages at a time. A book was Bill's tonic before sleep, even in the fair lane. Like most cowboys on the road, Bill and Jim were practically broke nearly every mile. They filled the gas tank at 30 cents a gallon and drove wherever they thought they had the best chance of winning. Casper, Rapid City, Sioux Falls, Omaha, Burwell, Sydney, Kansas City, Gaiman, Albuquerque. They arrived in town and went straight to the arena where they paid their entry fees for that night or the next day's rodeo. They might know some other cowboys, and someone's family might have a ranch with a bunkhouse nearby. If they had money, they could check into a motel. In the afternoons, there were football games and cards, or they might go fishing or catch some sleep. Sometimes they would stay in town for a few weeks, and other times they were moving daily for weeks on end. Often they slept in fields or barns, or they drove through the night. One night when they were driving west from Nebraska to Wyoming, Bill said, I don't like your driving, Jim, but I like the quantity of it. Jim smiled his wry smile and nodded. He would have speeded up if he could have, but his boot already had the pedal pushed to the floor. Bill stretched his long legs, tipped his head back, and closed his eyes. His chin and eyes protruded from his face ever so slightly, his whole body long and narrow like a colt, young, lean, awkward. In Filer, Idaho, they entered a good-sized competition with good money to be won and good horses to ride. But more importantly, Bill Linderman was registered among the contestants. 
Bill Smith was 21 years Linderman's junior and had hardly a fraction of the strength, experience, or confidence of his hero. But Linderman already knew who Smith was from the amateur competition at Cheyenne, where Linderman had been a judge. Now, a year later, they were both entered in the same rodeo. Of course, Linderman didn't think anything of it. The thrill was all Smith's, to be on the inside, a player right there in the dugout with the big hitters, to watch Linderman ride not from under the bleachers, as he had done as a kid, but from behind the bucking chutes as a competitor. Bill Smith was jittery with excitement. That night, unable to afford a motel, he and Jim slept in their bedrolls in a racehorse barn. They woke to a steady, heavy rain, and when they arrived at the arena, it was slick with mud and dimpled with puddles. With the ground saturated and slippery, the horses were liable to slide in the chutes or to slip a hoof out in the arena and fall with their riders. The reckless horses could be dangerous in these conditions. Others, more careful of their footing, would not buck as hard, costing their riders valuable points. Most horses, disliking the mud splashing on their bellies, did a skip-hop pattern across the arena, trying to stay out of the puddles. When Bill's horse was loaded and saddled and ready to go, and the other cowboys were sitting on the top rails around the chutes, with the rain dripping from the brims of their hats, he paced back and forth behind the chute and imagined himself like Linderman, making an explosive, exquisite ride. His adrenaline was up, and he jumped a few times to get the blood flowing. He climbed the chute gate, straddled the anxious mare, settled into the saddle, and set his feet in the stirrups. His chaps and saddle and rope rein were wet, and steam rose from the warm animal's neck and back. Bill took a deep breath and nodded for the gate. The chute men on the ground were slow in the mud, and their boots slipped as they pulled the gate open. The horse seized the open gate, lunged forward, slipped and slammed into the fence. She caught Bill's right leg between her belly and the fence post, smashing it from the knee down. His foot was snugly in the stirrup, and all her weight was against that leg, motionless for a moment until she regained her footing, heaved her 1,200 pounds forward, and yanked his leg free. Still astride her, Bill held tight to the rein and tried to keep his balance as she jumped. She sunk her front feet in the mud and threw her hind legs out behind, and Bill's spine bent over the saddle's cantle, his head and shoulders whipped against her back. The boys in the opera house on the top rail of the arena fence yelled, Hold on! And he said to himself, Hold on, hold on, as he gripped the saddle with his thighs. But he knew he couldn't last. The leg pounded with pain. The mare jumped again, and he could not hold on. He snapped forward like a crusting wave, crashed over the mare's bent neck, and let go of the rein without time to think about how he might land. Bill's feet came free of the stirrups as he went over the mare's shoulders, and he hung in midair for an instant before he fell. The leg seared with pain again when he hit, but that was all. He had curled his body gently like a centipede when he fell to the ground. The little mare, free of her rider, danced away and stood still in the mud. They looked at each other for a moment, both of them motionless. It was cold and wet and still raining. His right leg was hot with pain, and only the adrenaline kept him conscious. He pushed himself up slowly and hobbled back to the chutes. The leg was broken. He could feel it, the narrow outer bone of his lower leg. If he told anyone, even Jim, the word would get around. They would brand him a sissy, and they would never take him seriously. 
He found a quiet place beneath the bleachers where he sat down against a rail and passed out. When he came to, Bill limped back to the car. The pain in his leg burned when he sat or lay still and dug like daggers when he moved. That night in the racehorse barn, the hay beneath the bedrolls provided little insulation or comfort. Bill lay awake most of the night listening to the horses in their stalls, the sound of rustling hay and of the animals breathing. He measured his restlessness against Jim's beside him, and he was jealous that Jim could move so easily in his sleep. In the morning, as Bill threw his bedroll back in the trunk of the fair lane, Jim couldn't help noticing the gait Bill had acquired the previous afternoon. Standard practice was to acknowledge such obvious hurts with a joke or a downplayed question. That leg sore could address anything from a pulled hamstring to a compound fracture. A simple, it'll be all right, would complete the inquiry. Bill had three horses to ride that day, and Jim knew it. Bill had ridden with the broken leg before. He'd broken one leg three times already, and the other leg once. But each time he had been in the mountains, where he could sit carefully on a gentle horse and go home at a walk. Getting on a bucking bronc was an entirely different game, yet he knew he couldn't let the broken leg stop him. He had heard all the stories of cowboys who rode with broken legs and arms and ribs, and Bill Linderman was the most famous of those men. Smith could not, under any circumstances, let Bill Linderman know he was hurt. It just wasn't done. When making the whistle could earn enough points for a paycheck, the cowboys were separated from the weekend warriors, the true grit from the wannabes, the truly broke from the merely poor. But as poor and determined as he was, Bill didn't ride any one of his three horses that day for the full eight seconds. But he climbed the rails of the chute three times, lowered himself into the saddle three times, took up his rein and nodded his head and made the best effort he could to hold on. Three times he landed in the damp dirt of the arena, and three times he pushed himself up and limped back to the fence. And the pain stayed with him long after he was thrown from each horse, long after he limped to the car at the end of the day and told Jim the leg was busted, long after he got back to Cody and had the leg sealed in a cast for six weeks to heal. That lesson carried me through a lot, he said. It taught me that you can do it. You can go on if you have to, if you want to bad enough, through injuries and hurts. The hurt lodged in his memory like other hurts that had accumulated through the years. It sank from the surface to some place deeper, to be recalled later in similar circumstances, like a personal litmus test of the limits of his endurance. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.